Wellness Force Radio, episode 48. So whether it's email or iPhone or Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, all of these products at their core have these hooks, these four critical steps. So every hook, every habit starts with the trigger phase. So what we do when we're feeling bored or lonesome or lost or hungry or dissatisfied or fatigued, what we do when we experience these negative emotions prompts us to action with little or no conscious thought. Welcome back to another episode. I am your host, Josh Trent. Thank you so much for this little slice of your busy day you're sharing here with me on the podcast. If you're brand new to Wellness Force, this is where I bring you the most inspiring and passionate experts in wellness, behavior change, and technology. These are the thought leaders. They dedicate their lives to empowering us with knowledge and tools that'll drive real transformation in our physical and emotional wellness. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. This month, Audible is giving a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial over at wellnessforce.com slash free book. You can pick from over 180,000 titles in health, wellness, or anything you enjoy to get them downloaded right to your phone or device. Some really cool and amazingly intelligent books on Audible, including the book that our guest wrote today, Nir Ayal, the author of Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. I read Nir's book last year and could not put it down. I actually listened to it three times on Audible, getting ready for the show. I think you are really going to love this show. I know because I dorked out when I was researching it. If you are into understanding why we do what we do, and how to show up more powerfully by learning about our habits. I want to read a review for this week that really hit me in the chest. It's from Katie Vandera. It's a five-star review. She writes, I'm a young mom, wife, and wellness advocate. For years, I've been a work in progress, trying to find a balance between motherhood, wife duties, work, and personal improvements. Listening to this podcast at work inspires me to keep going. There's a conversation for everyone to attach to, and I truly appreciate how real this podcast keeps it. Katie, thank you so much for your words. That means a lot. It gives me fuel to keep bringing on powerful people because I know out there, we're all looking for the same thing, and that's to be inspired and have better wellness. Today's guest, Nir Ayal. Nir has sold two companies since 2003. He lectures for Fortune 500 companies. He is a behavior change expert. He builds studies and writes about products and ideas that move people. I think you're really going to love this show. We'll talk about behavioral economics, experience of products and how those direct us. We'll dive into some things that the industry might not want you to know about, like how you get addicted to technology. And we'll give you some nice action steps in what Nears model of behavior science calls the hook model, learning about triggers, actions, and rewards and how we invest our time in that cycle. Without further waiting, let's jump into the powerful discussion with Nir Ayal. Nir, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. Well, first off, man, I just want to thank you for writing such a compelling and interesting book. I've been looking forward to talking with you for months. I'm excited to discuss really your life's work, this impact of how technology forms our habits and is literally changing the game of life. So thank you for making me smarter, Nir. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for your interest in my work. And yeah, this is a, an area I'm very passionate about, so happy to dive in. Well, today we're talking about this human impulse of behavior that's done with little or no conscious thought. 
otherwise known as habits. And whether we're aware of it or not, these habits shape the fabric of our wellness. So near, I read at the start of the show that you already write for TechCrunch and Forbes Psychology Today. You speak to Fortune 500 companies. You're an accomplished author and you're a teacher at Stanford and have sold two technology companies since 2003. But I'm curious, with all the millions of hits and impressions of your work online, what is something fun that most of us don't know about you? Uh, <laughs> something fun that most of us, most of you don't know about me. Um, you, you know, I, I think, you know, when you read the litany of stuff that, that, uh, that I've been involved with over the past few years, it, it it's, makes me sound actually just listening to it. Like I'm a productivity fiend. Um, and so maybe I should, I should kind of reshape that and, and let you know, and let your listeners know that I am an, a ridiculous procrastinator. I constantly get distracted by my technology when I should be doing the you know other work, uh, and and that is really the source of why I write what I write, as opposed to uh, being you know a, a, an expert through uh, through some kind of magical knowledge. I think I've gained an expertise through struggle. Uh, there's a great quote that says, "You teach what you most need to learn." Uh, my friend Gretchen Rubin says that uh, Reese searches me search. And that's exactly the case for me. So this, my work around uh, how technology shapes our habits and how to get control of our habits is really uh, born from a personal struggle. Uh, I was clinically obese uh, and I, I have struggled uh, for, for a good chunk of my life with getting control of, of unconscious behaviors, things I did with little or no conscious thought. Now, thankfully, I've, I've shed the weight and I feel great. Um, and I'm also struggling with, you know, continually around technology habits. And so I think I have this, you know, lifelong fascination with how do things outside of our bodies control us, right? Whether it's corporations, whether it's our environment, whether it's food, sex, drugs, whatever it is, how do these urges control our behaviors? And so that's something I struggle with, which is why I like much about it. Well, thank you for that awesome answer, man. I'm nodding my head when you said the lessons that we need to learn are the ones we teach. I mean, that's why I do what I do. I, I was 280, we talked about in the beginning of the show before we recorded. How much did you weigh at one point, Nir? I weigh as much as I did now when I was only 11 years old. So, uh, so I, I didn't, I, I haven't been obese since, uh, since, you know, mid high school when I lost weight. Um, but that struggle as a kid really, you know, shaped my life. So when I was in high, early high school, I wrestled at 185. I was on the wrestling team. That's how I started to lose weight. Got it. Well, near so much of Wellness Force Radio is dedicated to driving this real transformation, not only in our physical, but also in our mental. With that being said, we'd love to know your transformation. You already kind of touched on it a little bit. Your book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, this book is about how technology hooks us, specifically iPhones, computers, apps, and the internet. What really compelled you, what drove you to write this book? So uh, I had started two tech companies, and the second company was in the advertising and gaming industry. And, and these are two industries, let's face it, I'll admit to you now, kind of serving my penance. These are two industries that are focused on mind control, right? Those advertisers spending billions of dollars uh, are not doing that for their health. They're doing it because it persuades people to buy their products. Uh, same with gaming companies, right? Gaming companies are the masters of changing people's behavior to get them to do the things they want them to do in the games. So at the intersection of these two gaming industries, I learned a ton, right? I learned about how these companies use the psychology of human behavior to change people's actions and habits. And I, I became really fascinated by that. But what I was, was, was also interested in was the fact that there wasn't any kind of 
guidebook. There wasn't some kind of how-to manual to try and take some of these techniques out of those two industries, gaming and advertising, and bring them to the rest of the world, right? So what I was interested in doing was writing a book that anyone can use in any business to change behavior by understanding these deeper psychological tendencies that we all have. And that's where Hooked was was born. That's why I wrote this book. Um, So that was a big reason. As an entrepreneur, I wanted to give other entrepreneurs uh, this understanding of consumer psychology so that they could build better products and services and healthy habits into their products. That was one big reason. The second big reason was that I found that I myself was struggling with technology, right? That I I, I still do, frankly. This is still something I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to control is how do we put technology in its place? How do we put it away? Now, I love technology, right? I don't want to go back to a world before the iPhone and Facebook and Twitter. And I, you know, I, I love these products <laughs> yeah. just like I love good food. Um, but of course, if we eat too much of it, if we eat the wrong kinds of foods, if we use the wrong technologies at the wrong time, it harms us as opposed to helps us. And so those two factors of seeing my own behavior, trying to understand my own behavior, and trying to help people understand how to build healthy habits into their products was really the, the impetus for my work. I think what's so powerful too is your vulnerability, the ability for you to share from an honest, genuine place. I think it's why you've been so successful. And I got that in your book, whether it was through Audible or reading the copy in my hand, you actually wrote Hooked. And then after you mentioned this in a talk that your professional life started to suffer because you realized that, hey, I wasn't spending enough time with my six-year-old daughter and my wife and they were kind of paying this price. Right. How much of a ironic contrast <laughs> was that, that you you came out with this great book that was of certain service to people for changing their behaviors by letting go of certain technologies, but yet you were struggling with that at the same time. Can you talk about that? Sure, sure. So, you know, this is this is the most first world problem you could ever have, but it is a problem nonetheless. And that problem was that uh, I wrote this book. When I was writing the book, I had lots of free time. Nobody was emailing me. Nobody cared about me. I wasn't, you know, I, no, nobody was calling, right? I wasn't busy. I was spending a lot of time in the Stanford library doing research and speaking to people and uh, kind of, you know, being left alone. And, and uh, that allowed me a lot of time to focus on this research. Well, I wrote the book and I started blogging about what I was learning. And, and then all of a sudden I started getting phone calls. I started getting emails. I started getting booked for speaking engagements. And all of a sudden I found myself busy to the extent that I couldn't stay focused on the things I really wanted to pay attention to. So this is kind of the, the curse of doing well is that all of a sudden uh, what made you successful, in my case, research and writing, I didn't have time for anymore. Hmm. So it was constantly emailing and keeping up with my social media accounts and making sure that something that I wrote was properly promoted on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn. And you know all of these technologies were kind of uh, ramming themselves into my life at my hand, of course, but in a way that wasn't really serving me. And so that's when I started to, to kind of realize, wait, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I don't feel better. I kind of started feeling less connected to people in my life. I I had less time for friends. I had less time to be present with my, my wife and my beautiful child. And, uh, so what I wanted to do was to figure out, Hey, how do I, how do I break these unhealthy habits? And it turned out that the same exact model that I describe in the book, uh, that relates to how companies like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp, how these companies create habit-forming products is actually the same exact model that we can use to break unhealthy habits. So the, the model is called the hook model. It's this four-step process, and we can go into more depth around the four-step process. But the important thing is that we can use that exact same four steps of trigger, action, reward, and investment to break unhealthy habits in our life 
by removing the triggers, by making the action more difficult, by uh, delaying rewards, and by not investing. And we can go into further depth on those four things. Turns out it was the exact same mechanism uh, that I used to break those unhealthy habits. Mm -hmm. And I'm excited to talk about that too. One of the things that I noticed you do is you have word associations to help people remember. And this easy to remember hook model is Atari. All engines have four parts and you described it as the trigger phase, the action phase, the variable reward, and the investment phase. Let's go through one by one. I don't want to give away your whole book, but maybe just dive into first what the trigger phase is and how you came up with this model. Sure, absolutely. So Atari, A-T-A-R-I. So A-hook stands for a trigger is the first step, an action, a reward, and an investment. Uh, the first step of the hook is this trigger phase. And remember, the context for all this is to understand how products can form habits in our lives. So whether it's email or iPhone or Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, all of these products at their core have these hooks, these four critical steps. So every hook, every habit starts with the trigger phase. Uh, triggers come in two types. We have our external triggers, which are things in our environment that tell us what to do next. For example, uh, click here or buy now or play this YouTube video, all examples of triggers, right? The information is in the trigger itself. Those are external triggers. Mm -hmm. Now, internal triggers are something that people don't think about that much in the, in the, in the uh, entrepreneurial and design community, but turn out to be extremely important. Internal triggers are things that tell us what to do next, but where the information for what to do is in the user's head, okay? And these tend to be emotions. In particular, they are negative emotions. So what we do when we're feeling bored or lonesome or lost or hungry or dissatisfied or fatigued, what we do when we experience these negative emotions prompts us to action with little or no conscious thought. So what all habit-forming products do is attach to a pain. They attach themselves to an itch so that instantly when you're feeling lonely, you're on Facebook. When you're unsure, you're on Google. When you're bored, you're checking YouTube or Reddit or stock prices or the news. They all fundamentally attach to these internal triggers so that eventually through using this product, you don't need any more external triggers, right? You don't go to Facebook just because you've got a notification. You go to Facebook because you're seeking connection, you're bored, you're experiencing FOMO, right? The fear of missing out. It's these internal mm -hmm. triggers that eventually once these products can attach to those internal triggers, it's over. They have a monopoly of the mind. So that's the trigger phase. Is this where we learn about our deepest habit? Is this where addiction is formed, is in this trigger phase? Well, so addiction is, is, a, is a whole other topic and a fascinating topic, um, but it's, it's different because uh, you know, there's a reason I didn't call the book How to Build Addictive Products. The book is called How to Build <laughs> Habit-Forming Products because addiction right. is always bad. Addiction is a persistent compulsive dependency on a behavior or substance that hurts the user. So it's something that the user is harmed by wants to stop but can't that's the definition of an addiction and people kind of throw that word around addiction but it's really doesn't you know it doesn't qualify as a def as the technical definition of addiction unless it hurts you and you want to stop but you can't
Man, you hit the nail on the head when you said addiction, no matter what the context, is not what we're wanting. So yeah, of course, with triggers, whether internal or external, there's got to be some morality around it. And I know you talk about this in the book. Can you contrast the way that products are designed now for the triggers to build these internal triggers that might not be doing that great of a moral job? And then maybe a few products or companies that are doing a great job from a moral standpoint. Yeah, well, you know, so I think that... um that the vast majority of products out there, uh, the real problem is that they don't they don't suck us in, not the way that Facebook or Twitter might, and and that's kind of uh, or, or email, you know, that's what we people think of when they think about habit forming or maybe addictive products. They think about games and apps and things that pull us in. Candy Crush, right? Candy. <laughs> so the the real problem, actually, in my mind, is not those few companies that have figured out how to do this. The real problem is that most products out there don't suck us in. They just plain old suck, right? So the real problem is that there's so much opportunity out there to help people live better lives, but for the fault of the, of the maker not designing the products well enough, we don't use them. So think about all the, 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 the healthy habits we want to adopt in our life, whether it's eating better or exercising or spending more time with people we love or government services or local businesses. You know, Most of these technology products are god-awful. Right. Yeah. They're not designed with the human psyche in mind. And so that's the mission I'm on is to how can we help people do the things they want to do, but for lack of good product design, don't do. Mm. So that's the real problem. The, and then, you know, what I'm really pleased to see, though, is that that's changing, is that since the book came out, there are a whole host of companies today that are designed with the hook model in mind. And that's amazing to me. I mean, that's that's the most the biggest compliment anybody can give me is to say, "Hey, look, I read your book and I put it. I implemented steps into my process, into my product that now form healthy habits." Uh, there's several companies. There's a company called Seven Cups, which I'm very proud to be an investor in. They actually, uh, Glenn Moriarty, the CEO, read my book. He gave me a call. We talked for a little bit. I was so impressed with how he was using the hook model that I decided to invest in the company. And the 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 just to give you a brief example of how to use the hook model for good, um, Seven Cups is an app for people who would like therapy, but for lack of, of time, money, effort, social stigma, they don't get therapy. So if you think about a parent with a child that has a disability, uh, a veteran with PTSD, uh, someone who just needs someone to talk to and, 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 and had it not been for this service would use, you know, there's lots of things that, that quash our pain, that people turn to, again, out of sure. addiction out of habit, uh, you know, uh, stuffing down our emotional pain with food, with uh, uh, distraction, with alcohol. There's all kinds of things people can do to, to alleviate their emotional pain. What Glenn wanted to do was to bring therapy out to the masses so that the internal trigger is when you're feeling lonely, when, you're need, when you need someone to connect to. So the action is to just open this app. And for free, it doesn't cost a dime, you're instantly connected with a counselor. The investment, and here's where it's really cool, that fourth step of the hook uh, that, I, that I outlined in the book, the more you use the service, the more it becomes a habit in your life, you actually learn through these therapy sessions to become a trained listener yourself. And by forming that habit of helping, of being helped, you're trained on how to help other people. And it turns out they just finished a study a few months ago that found that this service that costs nothing online through the miracle of interactive technology is as effective as in-person therapy. They do 140,000 sessions a week with this one app, 
in 180 languages. It's tremendous. And, and so that's just one example. And there's dozens of other companies that are using these healthy habits to improve people's lives. We'll get right back to the conversation with Nir. I want to give you a free resource to start using some of the information Nir has mentioned today right away. Whether this show inspired you to start researching better habits, brain health, choose an audiobook that relates to you for free this month over at wellnessforce.com slash free book. Audiobooks are the perfect thing for podcasters. I know because I'm a podcast junkie, this is how I fit in all my readings. Audiobooks are a great solution to learning new information in this busy life. So head on over to wellnessforce.com slash free book today and grab a copy of something you've wanted to read for a while, but haven't had the time to sit down and read it. Now, back to the conversation with Nir Ayal. Other companies that are using these healthy habits to improve people's lives. And they're all playing off of these triggers, right? You said when someone feels sad, instead of crushing four hamburgers, right. they might pop open an app and talk about what's really on their heart. So I love that, man. Let's talk about the next three. We really dove into trigger phase. For action phase, you define this as the simplest behavior done in anticipation of a reward. Unpack that a little bit. Absolutely. So uh, the action phase, you know, when we think about what is the what is technology, when we, when we think about about technology, we often think of gadgets, we think of digital technology, but of course, you know, technology has been with the human species for, for tens of thousands of years. Uh, anytime we make tools, those are forms of technology. And the definition to, to explain what is technology, all technology is, is something that shortens the distance between the recognized need and the reward. That's all it is. I don't care if it's the cotton gin or the iPhone, all technology mm -hmm. does is shorten the distance. So the goal of habit-forming technologies is to simplify the steps, to remove as much friction as possible be between the need and the reward. So these habit-forming products are things that, that make it just so incredibly easy to get relief from that emotional pain. So pushing the play button on YouTube, a quick search on Google, a scroll on Facebook, all of these things are incredibly simple actions done in anticipation of an immediate reward. Would you say from an action phase, what holds people back from using fitness applications is the fact that the application itself becomes another responsibility? What are some apps out there that you've seen in the fitness or wellness space, maybe more in the activity or in the nutritional tracking space that are doing a great job of what you call this hook model? Yeah. So there's another company. I don't mean to tout my companies, but there's another company I invested in. Tout away. I'm yeah. particularly proud of. Um, so what, you know, what a big problem uh, when it comes to the obesity epidemic and when it comes to fitness and health, uh, I, I believe that that what you put in your mouth is much more important than what and than how much you exercise. Right? That it's for the average person, it's almost impossible to exercise yourself skinny unless you're Michael Phelps and you're in the pool all day long. You know, you're really not going to. It's much more important to worry about what you put in your mouth than than how much you spend, how much time you spend in the gym. So I invested in a company called Pantry. And uh, Pantry's fascinating. So what they realized was that the real problem around getting people to change their eating habits was not that people didn't know, right? There's this perception of, oh, people eat unhealthy food because they just don't know. And I think that's complete BS. Everybody knows that chocolate cake is worse for your health than some carrots, right? There's no, you know, the average person, I don't care who they are, they basically know Sugar and fat in, in, a lot, in, in high quantities is going to make you uh, gain weight more than high-fiber green leafy vegetables, right? That's not rocket science. So why don't people eat healthy? Well, it turns out it's not motivation, 
right? It's not that they don't have the knowledge. It's that it's too hard. It's just too difficult to get the healthy food because unhealthy food, generally processed carbohydrates, are cheap, they're accessible, and they're delicious. And that trifecta makes it really hard for us to eat healthy. So here comes Pantry Labs. They put in these small refrigerators. It's not a complicated technology. They, they work with local restaurants to make these prepackaged, daily delivered fresh meals that are also very healthy. Then they slap on essentially an iPad onto these refrigerators so that every time you open the refrigerator, there's an RFID chip on every product in the refrigerator. And as soon as you pull it out, it charges your credit card without you doing a thing because your credit card's already on file. So you put in your little code into the iPad, you open the door, you take out your food, you're done. That's a great example of the implementation of the action phase, making the reward as easy as possible because suddenly that refrigerator is as easy to access, even easier than a vending machine full of, of, of refined sugar and carbohydrates. It's certainly even easier than going to a restaurant, right? getting into your car, leaving your workplace, driving to a McDonald's. It's even easier than that. And so that's a great example of shorting the distance, decreasing the steps to, to increase the likelihood of people doing the right behavior. And, and it's, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's such a simple solution, just bringing the food to people as opposed to having them take all these steps to go uh, find the food themselves. This action phase where you talk about the barriers really to doing whatever it is that's going to get the result. And the result is them feeling good. The person eating something, getting that serotonin, dopamine hit. Just relieving hunger, right? The internal trigger of hunger. Uh, it, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, uh, who, I'm raising my hand. I'm cranky when I don't eat. I mean, we're all human right. beings. So, <laughs> right. so we right. look at this action phase when we anticipate the reward. That goes down to everything we do. When we call a friend who we always have fun with, we know as we're dialing their number that it's probably going to be a great call. The same thing happens with food, though, in this action phase, it's sounding like. I'm curious if there's any applications per se, like a Fitbit or anything on the tracking side that you've seen move the needle for other people in your work. Yeah, you know, I, I have to admit, I'm not a huge fan of uh, fitness apps, by and large. Not all of them, but I actually wrote an article uh, that, that goes into a lot more depth on this called Why Fitness Apps Are Making You Fat. Uh, it's on my blog, nearandfar.com, and I, and I got a lot of flack from, from uh, fitness people <laughs> for That's it. That's a great title, yeah. But, but I really do believe it because if you look at the deeper psychology of what the, the average fitness app out there wants you to do, it's incredibly counterproductive. And, and let me give you just a few, a few uh, hints why. You know, number one is this realization that food is, food is first, right? And what, what fitness apps tend to tell us is if you walk your 10,000 steps, whatever mumbo-jumbo bullshit study that came from, if you walk your 10,000 steps, suddenly you're going to be healthy. And that just ain't true. That it's, exercise is wonderful it's beneficial. I don't want a bajillion emails telling me how I'm wrong and, and, and exercise is good for you. Of course, exercise is good for you. But exercise is only good for you when you actually do it, right? And what these apps tend to do is not to provide a variable reward, which is what I, I talk about as a third step of the hook, the reward. What they tend to do is to give you a variable punishment. So you check these apps and instead of giving you something rewarding, which is what every other habit-forming technology does, instead it tells you, hey, guess what? You're still fat, right? Still no progress. Why? Mm. Because exercise alone doesn't do it. 
So it's not about sweating it out of the gym. It's not about yeah. uh, killing yourself uh, emotionally if you didn't get your 10,000 steps. First and foremost comes food. And so I think that that, that uh, tendency that a lot of fitness apps, apps have as, well, exercising is the only solution. That, and if you do that and you have to suffer through it and you have to sweat and you have to uh, you know, really uh, put in your, your, your time in the gym, that actually doesn't pay off uh, in, in, in a, in, in a, in a substantive way, unless you change what you eat. So that's, that's one of the reasons I give four other reasons why fitness apps make you fat. Um, one of them just to touch on really quickly is this idea of moral licensing that there's a lot of stuff. There's several studies now that show this effect that we call moral licensing, that when we're good in one area of our life, we are bad in another. Right, and this effect has been shown time and time again. When we expend willpower, we on one thing, and we feel like we suffered. We allow, we allow ourselves, we indulge, we reward ourselves in other areas of our life. And so, this is what we see when people go to gyms. Uh, they they sweat it out. They you know they spend forty five minutes on the treadmill. They're absolutely exhausted. And of course, the first thing that they see on their way out of the gym is that you know, shake bar where they can get a Jamba juice with 60 grams of sugar as the reward <laughs> for spending or, or a jar of Coca-Cola. I've seen Coca-Cola in gyms. It's crazy. Right. Crazy. Well, Coca-Cola, people, you know, most people know, oh, that's not a health food. What kills me is that people think, well, you know, my, my Jamba juice, it's, it's, it's fruit, right? Yes. <laughs> it's yes. fruit juice. And and doesn't matter that it's full of fructose, it's fruit yep. juice and somehow that's healthy. Um, and, and they feel like they deserve it. So, Unless we really have this focus on what really does make us gain weight, uh, I think we're, we're diluting ourselves. And in fact, we're inspiring people to go overboard. I mean, we all know uh, people who have run marathons and train and train and train for months and months, run the marathon, and they weigh more after the marathon, right? I can actually attest to that. In 2007, I ran a marathon and I gained 10 pounds and I was eating just to satiety, not overeating. So I a hundred percent connect with what you're saying. I want to get to these other two phases sure. in your hook model, just because they're so powerful for people to know. I did want to close up that action phase though. When you talk about that, these apps are kind of enabling people to gain weight. I agree. If there's not a human connection, if someone's right. using an app and they have that mindset of being neurotic about tracking calories, being neurotic about overboarding their steps and they're not working with a coach, that's dangerous. So definitely if anyone's listening, you're using an application, that's what I do. I mean, I'm a digital health coach. I've seen this time and time again in my groups and near what you talked about where someone can actually gain weight by over tracking. I've seen that too. Yeah. yeah. So, so this variable reward phase that you talk about, this is phase three in your hook model. This is where someone gets the dopamine hit, that nice warm feeling. They get this variable reward. Like it, it's almost as an example of someone scrolling on social media. Right. Can you unpack variable reward? Sure. So this comes from some very old uh, research done by uh, first done by B.F. Skinner, the father of operant conditioning. He took these pigeons, he put them in a little box, and he gave them a food pellet every time the pigeon would peck at this disc on the wall. And at first he would train these pigeons. He discovered very quickly he could train these pigeons to peck at the disc whenever they were hungry, right? Peck at the disc, get a food pellet. But then Skinner did something a little different. He introduced what's called a variable reward. So sometimes the pigeons would peck at the disc and nothing would happen. No food pellet would come out. The next time the pigeon would peck at the disc, they would receive a reward. And what Skinner observed was that the rate of response, the number of times these pigeons pecked at the disc increased when the reward was given on a variable schedule of reinforcement. 
And so we find this all over the place, right? In all sorts of experiences that we find most engaging, most habit forming, the things that capture our attention and won't let go, you will find a variable reward. I mean, this is what keeps us glued to the news, right? It's what's new. What what happened today? What you know? Is it good news? Bad news? It, it's what keeps us reading uh, interesting fiction, right? When we read a novel, we want to know what's going to get to what's going to happen at the end. Uh, it's why, of course, gambling is habit forming, if not all out addictive. It's the variable reward of what I might win, and of course, it's in our technology. Uh, every time you open up a Facebook uh, news feed, for example, you're not quite sure what you're going to see, right? What, what videos might you find? What are the comments going to say? How many likes does something get? High degree of variability. So that variable reward, that, that uh, uh, difference between the mundane and the interesting keeps us checking and checking and checking, looking for that next interesting piece of content or, or information. We had Dr. John Gray on the show a few weeks back. He talked about the instant gratification model that is prevalent in society. Do you feel like this variable reward is something that continues to grow for people? Is that what's driving addiction in the country? Well, you know, again, addiction is is, is kind of this, this other category. By the way, I don't necessarily think that these things are bad. Uh, I think it's it's entertaining, right? The you know we, we don't want to sit down in a movie uh, where we know what the ending is going to be at the movie. That that makes for a really <laughs> boring movie. We need sure. variability. That's that's what keeps us interested. Uh, so I think it can serve us. I mean, you know, look, sports uh, sports are healthy for us. Whether it's uh, you know when we're playing sports, at least as opposed to just watching them. You know, part of the excitements of sports is the uncertainty of who's going to win. <laughs> uh, mm. So it's not that variable wars are necessarily a bad thing or a good thing. It's, it's part of our DNA. It's part of what kept us hunting on the plains of Africa, uh, chasing down our, our food. It was that variable reward, was the, the thrill of the chase. Um, and, and when it comes to addiction, let me just be very clear. You know, addiction is not the product Okay. Even the most, you know, when people think of, of heroin or cocaine or nicotine, they think these products are addictive and that's why we get hooked to them. And that, and that's actually not accurate. Uh, you know, many people, uh, go to the hospital if they've, you know, had some kind of an unfortunate accident and they are given disomorphine, which is pure heroin. Uh, it's, it's a better form of heroin than you can get on the street. Uh, and they don't become hooked, right? They don't become addicted to it for life. It's not the chemical uh, that necessarily addicts them. Just as you know, we all eat food, but very, very few people are food addicts. We all have sex. Very, very few of us are sex addicts. Uh, you know, so the, so we all use the internet, but very few of us are addicted to the internet. Uh, so it's not that the product itself is addicted. It's that it's a combination of the person who shows a psychographic profile for addiction, meaning that there's some kind of deep-seated pain that they're escaping. All addiction is about the escape from a present uncomfortable reality that is that they escape from with a product's use. But for the vast majority of people, and we're talking you know, 95, 98, 99% of the population – these things aren't addictive in that they don't hurt us, right? We're not freebasing Facebook. We're not, <laughs> uh, you know, inserting Instagram into our veins with needles. That's not that's not how these products work. They're at times bad habits. Sometimes we overuse them, uh, just like sometimes we overeat or we overindulge or we, you know, we watch movies. We binge watch on movies. But most people can moderate. So I, I don't, I don't think that necessarily we we have that much to worry about. In fact. I think the opposite. I think unless people have a, a, a psychographic profile for addiction, 
uh, I think the world's going to continue to become a better and better place because of these technologies that help us do things we want to do. I love the way you position that because really it's the craving. I mean, people have these cravings that are almost insatiable, especially for an addict. And that might be a completely separate topic, but there is a blending definitely of how technology can help addicts. And I'm curious how the future that will play out. Do you have any thoughts about how technology could help people that may become addicted to certain substances or, you know, internet pornography or the internet itself? How do you see that going in the, in the road ahead? Yeah, so so there's one. So for for the most part, I'm not very critical of uh, of the vast majority of products out there. In fact, you know, I wish more products would become more engaging so that people could actually get the things done they want uh, from these products. But there is one category of products and services that 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 I am pretty harsh on, and these are products and services that rely upon addiction, right? So you know, if Facebook. New, if Facebook said, look, if people who are addicted to our product, we're, we're going to stop you from using the product, that would be fine. Nothing bad would happen to Facebook. But there are some companies out there that if they cut off the addicts, they're out of business, right? Las Vegas doesn't care about the person who comes into town once in a while on a, a bachelor or bachelorette party. That's not what drives Las Vegas revenue. What drives Las Vegas revenue are the people who are addicted, are the people who can't stop even when they want to. And so, you know, Las Vegas would, would shut down if Vegas actually barred the addicts from playing. And so that's where there's this interesting uh, ethical dilemma that I, I think requires further exploration. I think, you know, also the gaming companies. I think a lot of gaming companies, when it comes to, uh, you know, not specifically pointing fingers, but when we think about games like Candy Crush or Angry Birds or uh, sure. you know, Clash of Clans, I don't let my kid play these games uh, because I know that they are designed to be incredibly habit-forming, if not a lot addictive. And for some people, they become a real problem. Uh, and I think what's interesting about those industries is that, that, that they rely upon people who don't casually use it. They rely on people who go way too far with these products, and that's, that's dangerous. But the good news is, and to answer your question about how technology can help addicts, the good news is, is that you know technology... Uh, or sorry, that addiction has been around for a very long time, right? Addiction is nothing new. People have been getting addicted to all sorts of things for a very, very long time. What's different with interactive technologies is that for the first time, we know who the addicts are. So if you were an alcohol manufacturer, you could throw up your hands and say, well, I don't know who the alcoholics are. How, How am I supposed to know? I can't do anything about them because I don't know who they are. But the interesting thing is that for these companies, these technologies, they all know. They know exactly how much you're using their products and services. And so that means, and this is why I'm optimistic, they could do something if they wanted to or if they were pressured to. So the gaming companies could say, you know what, 40 hours a week of playing Angry Birds, that's too much. Okay, We're going we're gonna to put a block in your way. We're going we're gonna to ask you to, to take a minute and to you know, become aware of how much you're using this product. If they wanted to, now, of course, that might hurt their bottom line, so we'll see if they'll actually do it. But I've called on companies, and I've written about this before, to institute what I call this use and abuse policy because they know who's using the technology, how much they're using it, and so that means that they could do something to help those folks. You're right. There is a moral implication, but it might be a separate conversation. I think that this technology is a tool. And like we discussed, it's the intention behind the tool. That's the most important thing. Last phase, the investment phase. This is where there's the likelihood for the consumer to pass through the hook again. This is an external trigger of some sort. So talk about the investment phase. This is the last phase in the hook model. 
Yeah, so the investment phase is where the user puts something into the product in anticipation of a future reward, a uh, future benefit. So it's, it's uh, something like accruing uh, followers on Twitter or contributing content uh, or data into the system or reputation. So anything that makes the service better and better and better with use. And so that's what's so exciting about these technologies is that the more we use it, they actually get better for us as opposed to things in the physical world, you know, your desk, your clothing, your, your furniture, all of these things lose value with wear and tear, but in interactive technologies can appreciate, they can get better and better and better with use. And so that's called stored value. And it's a very important concept when it comes to building habit forming products. They also load the next trigger. So when I send someone a message on WhatsApp or Slack, for example, I'm loading the next trigger by investing in the service. By sending that message, I'm likely to get a reply. And that reply will come back to me eventually, not right away, as, as this notification when someone responds in the form of an external trigger, which brings me back through the hook once again. So that fourth step is really different. Uh, that's something that, that uh, you, know, you, you don't see in the standard model of how we form habits. It's specific to product habits. You've got to have that investment phase. I love this phase the most because it really establishes the hook piece where they go through the whole cycle again. I think that's a really great way to explain it. I know your time is valuable. I want to keep you for 10 minutes. Is that okay? Sure. Let's do it. Now, we talked about health and wellness. There's a lot of people listening that are probably thinking, wow, this is a lot to take in. What are some just handful of key steps, though? Maybe a product, maybe a service, or maybe just a way of thinking about how technology can empower wellness that people should start to look at. Yeah, so so uh, I'm a little biased here. <laughs> so I think one, you know, there, one resource is, of course, the book. I tried to make it incredibly simple. The book is called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. Uh, it's available on Amazon. It's only 14 bucks. If you don't have 14 bucks, then, you know, go find it somewhere online for free. You can probably uh, pirate it somewhere. That's okay, <laughs> as long as you get the information. <laughs> um, so I, I really tried to distill down years and years of research into a simple format that people can use to understand how to build habit-forming technology, but also how to put technology in its place and how to break unwanted habits in their own life. And of course, there's you know a huge uh, reference section at the back of the book with all kinds of other resources and studies. Um, so that's that that this is the book I wanted uh, that I couldn't find a very simple. Uh, model that that you know I've heard that when people read the book and they understand the model they start seeing it everywhere right I get emails from people saying wow look at this variable reward or wow what a great investment phase I never knew this product was doing this to me now I understand why and how and that means I can get control over it I love this. And it reminds me of something that we talked about earlier when you were saying there's a clear line between how technology can serve and how technology can harm. There is a double-edged sword with tech. I think it's pretty prevalent. Everyone knows that technology is a tool. So when we look at the tools that are coming up in the next three to five years, my question to you is, what do you see? What are you excited about for either wearable technology or these habit-forming products that are coming out that'll be of service to humanity and wellness in the next three or five years? Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited. I think there's going to be so much more information and so much more triggering opportunities for us uh, that, that uh, will come about because of the, the, the micronization of technology, right? As we wear technology in uh, and on our bodies, we'll have access to information and triggering opportunities 
that we didn't have before. Uh, one company I just came across um, uh, this morning that a buddy of mine has been using for the past couple of years, uh, it's, it's, it's a glucose monitor that uh, fits right on your side. And it used to be something that uh, only people with uh, you know, severe forms of type 1 diabetes that they needed an insulin pump had to wear all the time. Well, now this company is actually going to make this product available for everyone, whether you have diabetes or not. Uh, you know, that provides a, a, a pass through the hook that I just described earlier, that's never been possible, right? So now that we know the linkages between uh, hormones, specifically insulin and weight gain, uh, we can much, we can be much uh, more effective at deciding what we eat and how that affects us personally by having data with us at all times around our, our glucose levels, right? That that right there uh, will be yeah. a huge step forward. I could see that being the diet of the future. It's just this little glucose monitor that says, hey, you know, a few minutes after I eat, maybe an hour after I eat, it tells me how what I ate affects my blood sugar. And now I have a food a feedback loop to decide what I will eat in, in, in the future as opposed to the current way of, of doing things, which is, okay, I eat something, I track it, I try and, uh, I try and equate it based on calories in, calories out, that we know that there's a lot of bad science around calories in the first place. Uh, but, but then maybe a week later, I'll see the results on the scale. Maybe I'll remember, maybe I won't, you know, this, this, the, the technology coming down the pipes that, that makes us pass through the hook with faster velocity. That is what I'm really excited about. And I think these kind of technologies enable that. Do you feel like these biometric data sensors like non-invasive glucose monitoring will surface and that'll direct the health and wellness industry? I think so. Yeah, I think so. I think that's just one example. I'm, I'm looking for more and more, but I think anything that can provide us uh, direct feedback, uh, the faster the feedback, the more actionable it is. Well, this is my favorite part of the show. We're almost through. This is seven for seven. It's seven quick questions for seven top of mind answers. Are you down? Let's do it. If there was one thing you could change about the health and wellness industry, what would it be and why? I think it would be a focus on food, not just fitness. How does a behavior change expert start his day? What is your typical morning routine? Uh, so I cook breakfast for my family. It's the first thing I do in the morning. And then for yourself? Uh, for myself, I oh, I grind my own coffee. That's that's my little ritual. Ah, morning. good ritual. Yes. <laughs> Has there ever been a person or an event in your life that you feel most catapulted you towards the career you're in now? So my my wife, I have to give her a ton of credit. She's she's my secret weapon. She we we've started two businesses together, and uh, now we work together again, and and she's been just phenomenal. Who has been your greatest mentor or mentors in your life? Uh, so, uh, Gretchen Rubin, who's the author of the happiness project and better than before, uh, she's been incredibly helpful just, uh, to bounce ideas off of and, uh, uh, made herself very available over the years. So I have her to thank. Is multitasking possible? If so, how many tasks can we do before it takes away from the quality? Uh, so there's, there's a lot of, of conflicting research on this. There appears to be some segment of the population that can actually multitask. It's a very small portion of the population. It turns out they, they can, but for mere mortals, it turns out you can't. That's what I thought. I like doing one <laughs> thing at a time anyways. Last two yeah. questions. Number one, what is a best-selling author read? What is a few of, or maybe even your favorite book? Oh, there's so many. I'm looking at my shelf of books right now, and there's so many on here that, that have uh, provided inspiration over the years. Uh, I'm a big fan of Timothy Wilson's work. He wrote a great book called Redirect that's really good. Um, uh, a book that uh, inspired uh, 
some of my work is called Addiction by Design. It, it looks at Las Vegas gambling, machine gambling that's written by Natasha Dalshul. That's uh, a great book. It's a little bit different than the work I do in terms of, of uh, internet, uh, in terms of technology and apps, but uh, the parallel is not too far-fetched. So that's one I'd recommend is Addiction by Design. I think that's a, a great book. Last question, and I'm really excited to hear what your take is with your background. What is wellness to you? What is your personal definition of wellness? Mm, wellness wellness is, I think, awareness. It's, uh, it's awareness and control. I think that's wellness. When you can do the things that you want to do, uh, that's, I think that's wellness. Loved your answer. You can kind of just drop the mic after that because yes, <laughs> it is about awareness and hopefully through books like yours, these powerful books and shows like Wellness Force Radio, people can just really become more aware. That's what this is all about. I want to pause for just a second and honor the tremendous work that you do, Nir. Thank you for writing this book. We'll have everything linked in the show notes. Thank you so much for the contribution you're making to wellness. My pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Where can people link up with you and learn more? So my website is nearandfar.com. Near is spelt like my first name, N-I-R, nearandfar.com. And my book is Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And it's available wherever books are sold. Next week, you're at the Habit Summit at Stanford. Um, tell us just really briefly about that. Sure. So next to a week, uh, the Habit Summit is on March 22nd, and we do it every year. So this is the third annual Habit Summit. It's an event for people who are designing products, who want to better understand their own behaviors, who are better under want to better understand group habits. Uh, so we'll be talking about consumer psychology, individual psychology, but really in the business context. Uh, and so it's a day-long event, uh, 350 people, and it's, it's always a phenomenal, phenomenal time. Sounds like a smart room. Nir Ayal, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you so much. I told you that was going to be a phenomenal episode. If you listened last week, I wanted this one to be a surprise because I know how powerful our habits can be. I want to hear from you. I've had some reviews come in, lots of emails, but I would love to hear your voice. You can leave me a live voicemail message. I'll play it on the show and I'll send it to the guest that was on the show for you by you. Let your voice be heard at wellnessforce.com slash voicemail. Thanks so much for listening to the end of this show. Are you right now using a podcast app on your iPhone? Tap the screen where you see the show logo. You'll discover all the links from today's show pop up easily right on that screen. You can hit the review link in purple and take just 60 seconds to leave an honest review to be published live on iTunes. Your amazing review allows Wellness Force Radio to reach more people, keep the lights on for the show, and most importantly, bringing on world-class guests who are making a difference and changing lives through wellness. If you need show notes from today, which I would definitely recommend, there were some fun apps. I'm going to check out that pantry service one myself, maybe the non-invasive glucose monitor. Everything from today can be found at wellnessforce.com slash habits. Now you get to go and have an amazing day with all the tools and inspiration from Nir and every other guest that's been on the show. And until I see you again real soon, I'm wishing you love and wellness. 